Welcome. Welcome to this new podcast of Kuno, the platform for humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands. And my name is Peter Heinsen. This new podcast will deal with the Ombuds, an Ombuds for Humanitarian and Development Aid in international settings. This idea started again during the spring of 2018. This new thinking on the humanitarian ombuds did start after a whole series of publications on sex parties during humanitarian interventions at Haiti. And this was all after the earthquake in 2010. But the publications came much later. And it was a cause for a lot of debates in the Netherlands but in many other countries. What steps should we make to minimize the risk on sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment? And how to help the victims in the best way? Do we need better procedures? Do we need better standards? New passports for humanitarian uh, professionals? All kinds of suggestions were made and all kinds of initiatives started. There was one specific suggestion, and this was the Ombudsperson for Humanitarian Settings. And it was the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs that commissioned a scoping study on the Ombudsperson for Humanitarian Aid and Development Aid. This November 2018, the scoping study was presented by the authors at a meeting of CUNO in Humanity House in The Hague. And this podcast is a reflection of that presentation. The first 30 minutes will deal with the presentation of the report and some clarifications of the authors in reaction to questions from the audience. Then the next 35 minutes, representatives of the sector will give their first impressions. And the last 15 minutes, you will hear the debate with the rest of the audience. So, we will start with two of the three authors, Thea Hilrest and Asmita Naik. Asmita Naik is an independent consultant. But first, you will hear Thea Hilrest. She's a professor in humanitarian aid and reconstruction at the International Institute of Social Studies in The Hague. start to introduce the report, I just wanted to um, convey that for me this is a very special occasion. And to start with, it's a very special issue that the Ministry for the Fair has taken up this, the, the ombuds as uh, one of the, the, the points of action following the sexual exploitation and abuse scandals that we had in the in the spring of this year. And I'm really sort of turning sort of Dutch chauvinistic nationalistic person here, I'm afraid. First time in my life I feel sort of proud of the Netherlands because it's really quite something I think that the that the Dutch government is taking this up. They have started with uh, in th- for the for the ombuds so far one major step has been set which is the step to um, commission the study the scoping study that I'm going to present but what I so like and what I wanted to mention is that of course you many of you are aware that the Netherlands has embarked on I think a 10-point plan and um, in the Netherlands, what we have seen is that there has been a, a huge collaboration, very deep collaboration between uh, involved ministries and NGOs and PARTOS, which is the, the branch organization of the NGOs. And so the Ombuds is only one out of ten points that is being dealt with. 
And what I wanted to emphasize from the beginning is that is the ex, is the amazing coherence between it. I was just given this uh, wonderful uh, manual for the integrity system by uh, Bart from the uh, Partos, and I think there the compatibility between the integrity system that has been developed over the last few months by the NGOs and the uh, idea of the ombuds as we have developed it is, is really very compatible. So I have a feeling the analysis is, is operating in a rather coherent way. And I can only hope that um, that, it will be f that we will find some more buy-in for this whole approach, both within the Netherlands but also internationally, because that is necessary. And... Um, we will talk, I'm sure, about it later. There was a summit on integrity in the UK where you can clearly now see that there are two approaches to this whole issue. And, and the UK it itself has embarked on the more... on the idea that sexual uh, abuse is something done by exceptional uh, perverts or something like that that have to be found through Interpol and uh, humanitarian passports and stuff like that. Whereas I think many of us are aware that we have the occasional international perverts, and that's good to find them. But in reality, we have a system that is not accountable and a culture that is not accountable. And a system where, of course, there are a few people traveling internationally, but 98% of the staff is actually from the country itself. So the approach we want to promote is an approach that both takes a sort of very sanctionary uh, legal approach to pick out the perfs, but at the same time um, an approach that is very much geared to education, cultural change, and stuff like that, an integrity system. So I think the way you can read this report as well is how does the ombuds fit into the entire integrity system that we are trying to develop together. So what we did is, uh, the three of us, Andrew Cunningham, he's a consultant. He used to work for MSF a long time. Asmita Nike and myself. Asmita will probably introduce herself a bit later. She has been involved in this issue for a long time, and she was one of the investigators of the earlier scandal that broke out around sexual exploitation and abuse in West Africa all the way back in 2001. I mean, this is not the first time that we had a scandal. So Asmita was involved in that. Um, Andrew Cunningham, he's a... A, a consultant who used to work for MSF a lot. Now, MSF is usually very disinclined to engage in stuff like an international joint something. So it was really nice for the team to have this kind of uh, balanced team work we had. I'm a professor. It's also a different position. But I must say that I have been working on the ombuds before, even in the 1990s late 1990s, or on issues of accountability. And I also like to disclose that I'm a board member of the Core Humanitarian Standard Alliance, which is, uh, of course, also an organization that plays a role in this whole, whole discussion. Now, what we did is, um, over the summer, we, we did a documentary review. We had 125 participants we talked with, lots of parallel interviewing, lots of brainstorms amongst ourselves in the team, but also with the participants of the interviews of all type of interviewings, UN, INGO, NGO donor specialists, looking into regional diversity, of course, not as much as we had hoped. Lots of interviews with European Americans, 
but we did really make an effort to also talk with people who are at least working or engaging in uh, the different continents and also to have a few, admittedly only one or two, two uh, interviews with uh, government representatives of countries that host a lot of refugees. And important to say is that the interviews reflect personal views of people and not their organizational positions. And that is important because, as you will see, our, 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 our findings are rather strong. But it doesn't mean that everybody is now ready to adopt the ombuds internationally because those are findings that reflect the, the, the opinions of people who are sort of with their hands and feet sort of working on these issues. And that may not necessarily be, of course, their board of directors and stuff like that who have much more perhaps maybe institutional views on, on how, how this can be or cannot be. Um, this study that was triggered by the safeguarding scandal around different types of abuse in the sector, and we thought it is good to define at least the core problem. The core problem is not, to be honest, abuse. The core problem is not abuse, because there's always abuse. There are always in inclinations of abuse. The core problem is that organizations have not done enough to stop abuse from happening. So the core problem is not like we wouldn't define the core problem and hence the core objective to stop all abuse and all incidents, but the core issue is really how can organizations do enough to stop abuse from happening? Um, lessons that we learned from ombuds mechanisms. One of the things we've done is really review ombuds mechanisms all over the world. Two notes here. One is that many people speak about ombudsmen, which is a Scandinavian word. But the word is, even in Scandinavia nowadays, it is a bit under discussion because it has a root in something else. It is not sexist root in its root. But nonetheless, you, it hears funny, ombudsman. Why not an ombudswoman? But uh, even in Scandinavia now, people start to say, okay, maybe the semantic roots is very innocent, but it sounds not so okay. So even in Scandinavia, we see now increasingly discussions to just drop this to drop the suffix and to just talk about ombuds rather than ombudsman, woman, whatever, person, institution, mechanism. So we, we follow that. We just talk about ombuds or ombuds mechanism. Second note is that there are loads of ombuds mechanisms in the world. And by and large, there are two traditions. One is the ombuds as it always was, like an independent body that can investigate abuses by authorities and power holders. Independent. Like we know in the Netherlands, the Ombudsman. It's paid by the Dutch government, but it's really independent. Most countries have that. Another tradition that has evolved in the course of the decades is internal Ombudsman functions. So big agencies, for example, the World Food Program, will have an Ombudsman within their organization that can look at complaints from the staff, the personnel. In our language, I think we would call that vertrouwenspersoon or something like that. So just to make it sure that when we talk here about the ombuds, we talk actually more about the first type of ombuds, the independent, outside of organizations, but supported by organizations, a sort of oversight from outside. But if you look at those 
experiences from how they work is first, it's a last resort. It's not an ombudsman is not like taking care of all the complaints of everything that is happening. It's a last resort and therefore it builds on everything else which is there. It's what you call a second tier response mechanism. It's not a first tier response mechanism. So to keep with the World Food Programme example, if they have an internal mechanism for accountability, if somebody would go to an external ombuds, the ombuds would first ask, oh, WFP, but I, you know, you have an ombuds internally. Have you gone there? Because that is your first port of call. So it's really a last resort mechanism. Ombuds mechanisms in the whole world, they do recommendations. So they are not directly enforcing. And that you see almost everywhere. It's one of the biggest miscommunications sometimes about ombuds. Like, can they sanction? No, they cannot. They can give recommendations. They can monitor. And if recommendations are not followed, they can sanction. But it's more like soft power. But soft power is also power, especially if that if that includes, for example, we will write write a report with your name in it and say that you haven't followed up our recommendation. That is power. Or we will tell your donor that you haven't followed up our recommendations. That is power. But it's not power as in we will now put you in prison type of power. Um, so ombuds mechanisms they publish their findings. They have to very actively reach out to make themselves known, because that's, we will see that it's one of the major issues, like how do people know that there is an ombud? Uh, they can also proactively instigate inquiries, and they use a variety of measures to reach out. Typical challenge, low usage, unless efforts are made to publicize the methods, to reach out to target groups, and to embed mechanisms in a wider portfolio of accountability measures. Our key findings. And here come the really strong findings. Need and embarrassment. General agreement. We interviewed 125 people. 125 people agree that there is a gap in the current accountability structures and that there is a need for something external as an ombuds. It doesn't mean that everybody agrees what it should look like, its remit and everything, but all our participants felt there is a need of something. Also, very generally... Ombuds should build on existing accountability structures, act as a last resort, and be com complementary to, and not replace existing accountability mechanisms. A very key issue about ombuds is authority. You could imagine that you have an ombuds that is based in even an international UN sort of resolution or something of that kind. But that is a very amazing heavy instrument to provide authority to an ombuds. Other source of authorities that can also be combined and that we come up with is that it could be a mixture of donor conditionality, voluntary agreement, and moral pressure. So what comes out of the interviews is a mechanism that agencies buy into themselves, so they will just feel like, wow, it's important that we do this. They may also feel the moral pressure of other agencies and their peers to actually engage with the ombuds. But a very, very large number of participants also feel that donors have to come in, clearly make some conditionalities and actually ask from agencies that they fund that they participate in the ombuds. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that they have to become a member or something. 
or that they have to do every year something. But what it means is a condition that if the ombuds, if a complaint comes around about your organization, that beforehand you say, we will cooperate with the investigation. We will cooperate with whatever recommendations come out of the ombuds. It's not like you have to pay again and something like that to be a member. It's not quite like that, but you just have to collaborate. Coverage. All eight actors in humanitarian development settings. That was a big question. Should the World Food Programme, I just named the example again, be also, can you complain about them because they already have their ombuds? The UN will say, we already have our ombuds. Some other agencies say that too. We have internally an ombuds. No, but this is external. And if you think about it long and hard, you cannot exclude agencies from scrutiny. Because if somebody comes to me, if I'm the ombuds, how can I possibly say, wow, this is really a terrible abuse, but oh, I'm sorry, it was done by the UN. No, sorry, you have to go now. It doesn't work like that. You have to, if you have an ombuds, it has to be open for any complaints about any type of agency. So you have to have that. Also, I must say, there, it's almost like a conditionality. People we spoke about from NGOs, they would always make this like, hey, we like the idea of an ombuds, but if you only make it for NGOs, that will turn into NGO bashing. It should also be for the UN and even for donors and for whatever, and for researchers who walk in the field. That can also be very abusive. Um, so that's for the coverage. The roles as other ombuds, we felt the primary role of an ombuds is dealing with complaints as a second tier. What does it mean when you are a second tier is that, I just give you some hypotheticals here, like out of the maybe 20 complaints you get as an ombuds, there might be 18 that you don't investigate because you can refer them, you can accompany people. Hey, okay, you're from that agency. Have you tried? Because there is actually inside your agency, there is a complaint mechanism. Have you tried it? Why don't you try it first? And then you come back to me. Or whatever else. If it's really terrible, you can say, hey, sorry, maybe you should go to the police in your own country. So there's a lot of referral going on. But there's also sometimes investigations that have to take place. So a number of the complaints that come in will actually require from the ombuds to step out and to research. So there have to be a roster of experts around the ombuds that can actually do the investigations. Now, the recommendations, as I mentioned, they would be non-binding. However, there are sanctions. Soft power is also power, as I already mentioned. The sanctions can be in case of non-compliance. Eh? It's not about abuse should never happen. It's about what do organizations do to stop abuse from happening. So if the ombudsman recommends that an agency takes action against a certain person and the ombudsman asks three months later whether action has been taken and there is no answer, then the ombudsman has something to publish in the report. And that could be very strong sanction. A big threat to funding and reputation. And of course, we all know NGOs, the only thing they really have is their reputation. Secondary roles, proactive reviews, but very importantly, capacity development about the first-tier accountability systems. We see all kinds of nascent systems in the world. There are very interesting experiments with interagency accountability mechanisms or interagency complaint mechanisms, but they are all very nascent. So we foresee that an international ombuds will spend a lot of time as well in helping those type of systems to improve and to make sure that they work well. 
Um, key findings continued accessibility, which is the biggest challenge, perhaps, of all, because there is the question of ge geographical proximity, language, cultural barriers, and all those kind of things. And so somehow your fantasy can walk into a direction that you say, okay, if it has to be accessible, you have to have somebody in every country in the world. And they say, well, country is not even enough because there are so many languages. Okay, we need more people, maybe in every province of every country of the world. But then, of course, very quickly, you, you, you turn into a pro process where you feel, whoa, maybe the scalability and the cost are getting a bit out of hand. Plus, you would be creating all kinds of parallel systems where you would say that an ombud should build on existing accountability mechanisms, which are there already. So that shouldn't be necessary. But what should be necessary is that you carefully reach out that people know it exists. And also, and that is a key probably in this type of ombuds, that you receive, can receive complaints from others speaking on behalf of complainants. If I give you just one small example, we were talking this afternoon about this big scandal that happened in West Africa just recently, where an American lady set out a very nice initiative, you know, a non-governmental individual, and raised millions of dollars in the U.S., and she had so much confidence in her local counterpart, which was a guy who was setting up programs with children and orphanages, and it took her years and years to realize that the guy was actually abusing the children. It just happened recently. People were aware. There have been people there, staff members, volunteers, who felt there's something really funny. Those people, if there were an ombuds, could have gone to the ombuds. Like, hey, we have a feeling something really fishy is going on there. Why don't you investigate? So it doesn't need to be literally only the person who is abused who can go to the ombuds. It's also the consultant who drops by, the journalist, the ex-staff member who can signal that an investigation is in order. Ownership and governance, this has to be multi-stakeholder. That's why it is so important you're all here. Without buy-in from the whole sector, NGOs, UN, countries, different donors, the whole thing is going to fall flat on the ground, we can tell. And there's the issue of nesting. It doesn't seem smart to build an ombud system as a separate organization, as, a, as an independent, as a separate it could as a separate organization, but it would be much wiser to nest this into an existing organization that already has a lot of activity in the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, we have a model, even, and we didn't expect that. We started, the, I think, the terms of reference for our study more or less asked, can you scope around what people feel about the ombuds? But somehow, when you talk to 125 people and they're all in favor, you feel like, oh, maybe we can go one more step on the road. So we did. And we tried to see on the base of all the discussions we had, what would it look like, the international ombuds? If we would now have to start an international aid ombuds, what, what it could look like? So, as I mentioned, nested in an international body, a governance structure that is of all parts of the sector, a small secretariat. I don't think there's any donor who will favor an ombud that is represented in every country, every province, everywhere with big organizations and big, big, big. But there has to be a flexible workforce around it, like a roster of experts. And most importantly, it must be linked to first-tier complaint mechanisms. 
It can also be the first tier complaint mechanisms that refer particular cases to the ombuds, like, hey, this is too big to handle for us. Ombuds, come in. Or it can be a government-led ombuds mechanism that investigates aid, but doesn't know much about aid, so calls in the international ombuds, hey, come and help. We need to make a proper terms of reference for our own ombuds to take into account aid issues. You see? Next steps. So the next step will include to actually locate the initiative somewhere in an international, in a nesting location, and then test and model it in terms of its legal basis, organizational structure, cost, and nesting. I mean, we propose a model, but it's not, of course, ready, ready made. There's lots of loose ends and lots of questions <coughs> to see. Uh, it will be good at some point to assess state of the complaint mechanisms in the humanitarian development sector, because if you have a second tier complaint mechanism, it must build on the first tier. So if the first tier is rotten, the second tier cannot do much. Eh? This really, the second tier mechanism really depends on a proper first tier mechanism, and everything needs to be done to, to make that in order. Um, sector consultations to garner buy-in and support within the sector perhaps some field work to test the feasibility of the model, and then start, go, prototyping, and go. So that would be the next steps in our mind. And I'd like to thank you for your uh, attention. Thank you, Thea. 125 people and everybody was in favor. Asmita, do you want to add anything to Thea? We spoke to, um, in fact, 76 participants, and we consulted 125 documents. So, Yes. <laughs> Before I go to invite the other speakers, are there any questions for clarifications? Things you think, hey, please, Asmita, please tell me a little bit more. I don't understand. Or shall we proceed? There's one question over there. Could you please give us your name? Uh, hi, I'm... Um Arnold, HR Director from Borja. Um, we talk about embedded and nested. And I'm, I'm pos actually thinking about it. That puzzles me, and I still don't have it like an answer in my head. Could you... Could you Embeddedness, we mean it has to be embedded in a much broader accountability system or in the language that we are now using here, an integrity system. So the ombuds cannot be a loose initiative somewhere out there. It has to be clearly embedded in, in a system. That is the embeddedness. The nesting is something different. It has to be hosted somewhere. For example, it could be hosted in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands, but it doesn't seem a likely host. It doesn't seem like the best environment to host such an initiative. It could be nested in the Core Humanitarian Standard Alliance. Again, there are some pluses, but there's also some negatives there because the Core Humanitarian Standard Alliance is a membership organization. And what will happen if the ombuds rules against one of your members and you get a conflict there. So you have to think carefully what could be the international body that hosts. So nesting, we really mean the host. Yeah. Um, my name is Rumet, and I'm born and raised here, but I'm Kurdish. I just wanted some clearance on the credibility. And if you are talking about ombuds, is it one institution only? And if so, wouldn't it be better to have it be a local so that the locals that have been affected by the abuse have more credibility in being helped and understanding. Now, 
I understand your question completely. And um, it's one of the biggest headaches that we've had. And by the end of the day, it doesn't seem also useful to have like in every crisis-affected country a separate ombuds office, international ombuds office. Also because you might run into some trouble because you almost start to compete with the national ombudsman, which most countries have. So that's how, by the end, we thought it's better to have an international ombuds mechanism, but with very clear links. That's why we had the links, the national links separately in our scheme. Very clear national links. And also a roster of national experts. And it could be that you even have um, a point of call, sort of a, a, um, a calling address nationally. Or you can work with the national ombudsman. And that has to be really, it depends on which country you are. For example, I was 2005, I was in Sri Lanka after the tsunami. And there, the Sri Lanka government asked its uh, humanitarian, uh, human rights office to investigate abuses in aid. So in that case, why would there be an international ombuds? Because the national ombuds is doing it. But I followed the process. If at the time there was an international ombuds, they could have done a much better job because they could have called in the international ombuds to see how can we do this. Also now, for example, in the countries where refugees in Europe arrive, like in Greece, in other places, even in the Netherlands, our national ombuds has been looking into how we deal with children, refugees in the Netherlands. The Greek ombuds has done a lot of critical reports on that. So you don't also want to interfere with the national accountability mechanisms and more be of service to them than walk in and say, oh, we have a parallel international ombuds walking around in your country. Yeah, I could just add a couple of points on that. And as the Taya pointed out, um, you know that you know we don't we're not trying to duplicate what national um, organisations are already doing. You also then run into issues about legal jurisdiction and that complication of you know different jurisdictions in different places. And I think another point to bear in mind is that certainly when you know we were doing the interviews, it became apparent that sometimes national authorities, particularly you know in crisis affected areas when they're struggling to cope actually don't feel empowered enough to speak up to large aid organizations and certainly you know some of the interviews I had you know I received that feedback that you know they they feel almost fearful themselves so you almost need an authority that you know can help them and go beyond that and as we pointed out uh, you know a lot of the strength of this model and the authority comes from you know donor funding and donor cloud so for all of those various reasons um you know, we didn't really think something that was solely embedded at national level in different countries would work. But as they said, it, you know, it needs to work very closely with those national entities. Thank you, Ms. Peter. Any other urgent... The last and final question, then we go to the other speakers. Hello. Uh, my name is Hilda, Hilda van Hulst. Uh, I'm interim uh, integrity for SOS Kinderdorpen. And I, I, I'm so happy with this report. It's just beautiful. I like the model, uh, really. And I also like the, the core problem. Uh, organizations have not done enough to stop abuse. But is in the model foreseen some, something to help these organizations? Because where is one central point or, 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 I mean, everybody's doing something, 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think we go back to um, Thayer's original point that you know this needs to be part of a system and not duplicate what's out there. Um, you know, I think what the ombudsman can highlight is what are the gaps in the system, but we know that there are you know other organisations that are able to build those capacity needs, for instance, the CHS Alliance and, and others. So I'll just let uh, Thayer finish on that, but I think that would be my approach that, you know, um, it, you know, it has a kind of a discrete function in a way and it shouldn't, you know, be taking over the role of other organisations. And it's really important. So now we have two... It's converging towards two standards that all donors say you have to work here through this or the other standard. And a lot of work has been done, in particular through the PSEA work that has been done through this, those two agencies, Inter-Agency Standing Committee and the CHS Alliance. For example, there is a, I don't know if you've seen that, but there is an, 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 a guideline for investigating accusations of sexual violence and abuse, where, which is like developed by the Core Humanitarian Standard Alliance. It's, it's a very field-based guidance, and they also organize trainings. So they organize like six trainings a year for people who want to be trained as an investigator of complaints. So there is a lot around. There is quite a lot is already happening. Four representatives of the humanitarian and development sector in the Netherlands. First, you will hear Reintje van Haringen. She is the CEO of Care Netherlands and she is also the chair of the Dutch Relief Alliance. Then you will hear Marinus Verwey. He is CEO of ICO and also the chair of the Samenwerkende Hulporganisaties. Then we've got Bart Romein. Bart Romein is director of Partners, the biggest member organization of NGOs in the Netherlands. And the fourth person is Doris Voorbraak. And she is senior advisor of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the ministry was the commissioner of the study. Thank you. I'm going to invite the other speakers to take a chair also. Just please join us. It will be cozy and busy here on this side of the... Please take your chairs. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I really would like to invite you to give your first impressions. Share with us your first impressions. What are the bottlenecks? What are the opportunities? How do you think this ombuds could work? Or are you hesitating? What are your questions? And I really would like to start with Reintje. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak about this. Um, I wanted to go back to begin with for a second to the spring that they already mentioned when this whole discussion came up again. I had just been appointed CEO of CARE and with that came the responsibility of being the chair for the Dutch Relief Alliance. And the first, I think one of the first things I got to do was be at the ministry. And we had to discuss the new agreements on the joint responses that we implement. And the discussion was around, are we talking about zero tolerance for sexual abuse to happen? Or are we talking about zero tolerance for not reporting it? And that was some going back and forth. And in the end, it became, it's zero tolerance for not reporting on this. And I remember that we were all a bit relieved, knowing how difficult it is that along the chain and with the local organizations and their partners and their temporary staff that we work with, how difficult it is to really give a guarantee to your donor and say, it's not going to happen. In that sense, it's quite different from fraud, obviously. Um, 
And then at the same time, while we were, I think, a little bit relieved, it, it is and it should continue to be our core business to prevent this from happening and to make sure it, it stops. And I think that we need to be aware that although we do need to spend time on this and we do need to agree on a mechanism like this, that it should continue to be our worry that this happens because there's power imbalances and that there's social norms that apparently allow this to happen. And I think it's not just care. I think most of the, all of the members of the Dutch Relief Alliance, many NGOs um, that work in this field, that is part of our mission, especially if we're human rights um, driven. So I just wanted to make that point that the real focus should be on changing those norms without wanting to be as naive to think that we're ever going to be able to prevent this completely, but that should be the focus. Still, I do think that the, the report and the mechanism that is presented is really important, especially in its complementarity to what others already do or to what all NGOs do um, and other organizations. I was a little bit uh, taken aback when you said it can only function if the first-tier mechanisms are all in place and functioning, because I know that that is not yet the case. And I had actually, the way I had read it, I really liked the report. I thought it was a very clear and very helpful to get us all thinking. Um, I had actually thought if that exists, we have another mechanism and a motivation and a reference to make sure that we improve upon, and that's what I would hope to be to happen. Um, knowing simply that we're not there yet and that we need to become more transparent and that not within our own organizations, but indeed as a sector, we need to, we need to do that. Um, knowing at the same time, and especially if we're talking about the whole chain that we operate in, that it becomes really complex in local contexts where a temporary hire of a local organization that our country office works with is asking sex for services he delivers. And then wh how, how does prevention then really work? So I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of cases where we are also within the CARE International Confederation talking to each other like this is now happening. And then what do we do? So I also think, and I'm not sure that that is also part of the, the ombuds function, that we need that kind of practices and exchange on how do you deal with this in, a, in the right manner. Um, so I would say yes, it is a mechanism for as far as I understand it well enough that we need. I also think that it's, it's quite a big promise, if I can call it a promise. It's a, it's a huge commitment, I think. And so if this is piloted, that will only make sense if there are enough organizations that say, I fully commit to this pilot, not to the promise of the bigger thing once it happens, but from the very beginning on, so that we really get the best out of a pilot. And I would like to say, I cannot speak on behalf of all the members of the Dutch Relief Alliance, but as CARE, I would be very interested in being part of that. And I think the Federation might as well. But that is something that I will then discuss. Uh, maybe to end, to finalize, um, just to repeat once more that the real accountability is at the local level. And I think this is important that we are accountable as a sector and towards our donors 
but in the end, the mechanism should focus on how are we accountable locally, and that people indeed, and that goes to your point, trust the mechanism enough at a local level to use it, because that is what it should really be there for. I'll leave the rest for later for discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I did hear some important questions, but shall we move on first to Marinus and collect all the questions and get, then go back to the two of you? Is that okay? Marinus. Okay. okay. Um, thank you. Um, I think that um, our general bottom line is that we're positive about this um, uh, initiative and about this mechanism. Um, like Theo also said, I'd like to emphasize that it's a second tire mechanism and that it will only, it's built on the first tire of good um, systems within the organizations already. And I think a lot of work has been done, and I'm sure Bart will say more about this um, this year, also in joint collaboration to strengthen the systems that we as uh, NGOs have in, in place. For me, the elephant in the room is the coverage. Um, I don't think that NGOs are going to buy in if it's not clear that the UN and the Red Cross are also part of it. And um, this is also emphasized already. And, yeah, I mean, I've heard rumors that there hasn't been a buy-in so far. So I would like absolute clarity on this point. What is the position of the UN family and the Red Cross uh, in terms of this ombuds? There's three points I would just like to make as remarks. Um, it's what we've read from the report is that the target group is primarily aid recipients or affected populations. But if it's a second-tier mechanism, then would it not also be applicable to local staff? If you said 98% of the staff, I could ex imagine that also, if it's a second-tier mechanism, that local staff would use the ombuds as a complaint mechanism if the own system somehow doesn't work. The second thing we would like to underline is the security of victims. Because you said we're going to publish, and that's the soft power, but do no harm. Yeah? The people who are mentioned in reports or whatever, often the victims are then somehow penalized as well. Um, and the third point is, and um, Rentje also mentioned this, I think that the whole chain responsibility um, is one of the most complicated of all. Um, we had a discussion about that a few weeks ago when we had the, uh, the meeting here. I find that that is still an element that needs a lot of work. Uh, also in terms of, of course, there's a donor relationship to NGOs, but then NGOs have, of course, chain um, contracts and responsibilities and partnerships with local organizations. Um, and that is where partly you have to respect that those organizations are independent organizations with their own boards and with their own policies. Yeah, so you need... And the other point, and I think it was mentioned, is that often there's a lack of resource there. So I think that you need more work on the, on the chain side as well in, for it to really be a second-tier mechanism for the whole chain. Thank you. Shall we directly move to, to Bart, Bart Romain? Thank you. 
Um, well, first of all, I'd like to applaud the, the, the ministry for instigating this, this report for uh, Thea and Asmita and, and Andrew, I don't know him, but uh, for drawing up this report. I think it's very useful. I'm not an expert on humanitarian aid, but what I am <laughs> is the chair of an initiative that we collaboratively took uh, in the beginning of the year, uh, starting with the first uh, media news on, on, on Haiti, and we started with a joint action plan, and we framed it in a wider context, not only sexual abuse, but in the context of integrity. And we identified from the view of an integral integrity system we identified a number of areas where we really needed to step up our efforts. And one of them, one of the opportunities and issues, and the missing links was the Ombuds uh, position mechanism. But there was some reference to parts of this, this integral integrity system. Um, it's more than just norms, the hardware, norms and positions and mechanisms. It's also prevention, so you assess what, where are the vulnerabilities. Uh, there is a number of, of agreements and that's the norms, but there is also the enforcement system, eh? the sanctions, the research to be do to, to, uh, to, to take care of if there is a complaint, what is, what's the real, and how is it grounded, this complaint, and so on, and of course the accountability. So that's, a br and that's the hardware, I would call, so the, the mechanisms, the codes, and, the, and the, the roles and functions. There is also the software, and we didn't speak about it, and that's the cultural change. And whatever you are, have of mechanisms, that's also an issue of internal lear learning. The moral discussion in your organization, in cooperating organization, partnerships, the, the building up of a jurisprudence. So we, because we don't have answers for everything, we are, each day we are confronted with dilemmas. We have to make a choice. And sometimes we make a choice which, well, we, we don't believe in, but we have to do it, otherwise we won't achieve our objectives. This, these things, and also the peer uh, the peer uh, reviews, the peers, uh, the peer moral peer uh, comments. So there are things happening in organization. People just keep the mouth shut. The mouth shut. And this is also this is all a part of the moral system, which won't be helped off or get off, uh, get rid of by by hardware like an ombuds position mechanism or whatever. So that I just would like to describe the fuller uh, in, uh, integral uh, integrity system whereof the ombuds position is a very important uh, link in. And, but we won't win, we won't succeed if we don't fully address the integral integrity system. Uh, that also relates to accountability. Just let me give my own constituency our NGOs. We very often criticize private sector if there is something in the downstream chain or in the upstream chain, something wrong, like child labor or whatever. Uh, this sometimes is beyond your sphere of control, but it's not beyond your sphere of responsibility. So I think it's, I agree with Reintje that, yes, our primary accountability should to be to the local groups, but we also have an accountability to ourselves, to our, all our partners in the whole chain. That can be the local funders, that can be the public who fund us, who believe in us, can be a donor, can be any. So the accountability is wider than just local accountability, which makes it very complicated because, as I said, you have, a num you have a sphere of control, you have a sphere of responsibility. But I think we need to be accountable. We need to be very alert on things that are not right and to learn from it. And one of the, F of the, of the, the, the useful functions of an ombuds mechanism is to feed the learning. It's not only the complaint mechanism and the research and to, to do a verdict and to publish. I don't think they will ever 
publish any name unless people don't react to it, but so I, I don't believe in, in confidentiality. But, so the learning function is also very important. It will learn us to feed our, our whole change, which we need to. And, and that relates finally to the, to the Me Too, yeah, because what, what one thing what Me Too learned us is speak out, and that goes beyond all kinds of mechanisms and so on. That's also something which we need to support and provide a safe space for. And, and that's, well, I think an ombudsman position can help in that because, well, it, it gives some, some safe basis to, to, to lay down your complaints. Thank you, Bart. Thank you. Doris, would like you, um, you have a little bit of a double position like the commissioner of the report, so I also would like to hear from you how you will just bring this further. But first, maybe we should focus on your main questions about the report and the suggestions Thea and Anita made. And then later on this afternoon, we can see how we can bring this further. Is it a good idea to do it like that? It sounds Does like it a very good idea. Okay. So I work uh, here in the ministry. I'm tasked with uh, taking this uh, further. So I think that uh, it's been very clear that uh, this is an, uh, a big and important issue in the ministry. Our minister has already uh, publicly said that this is something that we take uh, very serious. It's now part of all our contract uh, arrangements with partners. So everybody also already has felt uh, that uh, level of seriousness. But the ombuds mechanism, or ombuds, has also been announced uh, in the Global Summit uh, in London. So it's, uh, it's on the books. We get uh, questions uh, about it. Um, our international partners are inquiring. Of course, we are part of a number of, uh, of networks. But the report, of course, lays out a model, but also brings up a lot of questions. But the good thing is, and I would like to ask you also to use this platform to be brutally honest also about issues that you find odd or bizarre in this report, because coming from Africa, you know, this is a very special platform. It's not normal that a government representative sits with... Uh, all NGO representative, and that you can uh, question each other. Here in the Netherlands, you can. And I was part of the integrity platform also. And I must say that it uh, made me very happy and also very proud to be Dutch, like Thea had this uh, moment of national chauvinism, that it is really something important that this can be done in the Netherlands and that you can hold uh, the government representative sharp also on this issue. So use this opportunity, please. And if not now, uh, come to us, because this is something, all the issues that you have uh, put forward are, of course, the issues that we are wrestling with still. The issue of coverage, for example, um, it's my question also. And there's a lot of defensiveness. Uh, we already talked about that also with the researcher, who have to be complimented for a very good report with also a fantastic bibliography. I must say these 125 documents are, are fantastic, but it's a lot of homework, and it's very clear to me that this is not something that the Netherlands can do on its own. And already the, the partners that we have been talking uh, with in our permanent mission in Geneva, for example, in Rome, in New York, um, you know... It, there's a lot of defensiveness already coming from the UN that we have, we have done this. We have these standards. Uh, there, is even, uh, there are ombuds mechanisms in these organizations, like you have your integrity plans, uh, and the Dutch NGOs, but also internationally, of course, there are standards that are adhered to. So people are not necessarily very enthusiastic about uh, a, a layer that is already perceived, and you have all been 
also referring to that as maybe something that is an extra <coughs> layer. And maybe the first layer is not yet good enough. So what will the second layer uh, be doing? But of course, we've heard from the researchers, this is on top of, not to replace. And it is an, an, an important mechanism to give um, accessibility to people who are affected. The, the, well, the example of Liberia that was given, it's these kinds of examples that drive this initiative also. So what we need to do um, is hearing more of your questions. Um, there has to be, that's my role now, that to make a, a plan de campagne also to have outreach because the partners who will be with, the, with us on this is not yet completely sure. Um, of course, in, in the UK, um, there was support for this, but then it didn't come out in the final documents. So we still need to also explain what we mean by this, you know, how it could look like. The issue of embeddedness in a broader system um, or nesting, you also called nesting. This is something that I, uh, well, we, we talked about this. It's, it's not entirely clear where you could nest an initiative like this. An initiative that's not uh, yet based on international agreements, because the researchers also say, well, you have a voluntary agreement, moral authority, and a lot of um, donor uh, push, you know, the donors here who can have a conditionality. If I read that, it makes me a little bit nervous that there is so much uh, eyes on, on donor conditionality but this may be uh, the case that is needed. So we need to um, look into this much more, do our outreach. But this is actually the first meeting that we have. Uh, well, I have, of course, you know, my colleagues have had meetings with, uh, with, a, with a number of you. But uh, you know, these questions that you have are all real, and we don't have the answers yet. So more questions are still very welcome at this stage. And also with the researchers, um, because um, I think also that the issue of coverage and nesting and authority are very big questions. And um, the model, the diagram that you presented doesn't yet give all the answers. So for this. Thank you, Doris. Yeah. One question before I give the mic back to Taya and Asmita. Um, the elephant in the room. Like Marine is saying, I can be positive, but it was a big but. The UN yeah. and the Red Cross. Do you have any indication? What, what is your gut feeling about it? Um, well, as, as we are hearing, so we are, the conversation that we are having now is that many of these organizations have their ombuds mechanisms. And so the, the, the first instance you hear defensiveness, that what would this be? Yeah. Would this be this extra layer? So that well, tells me that we still need to really be clear about what this will be. And we need to know what it is exactly that these organizations have. Because obviously, there are gaps in those systems. So maybe the answer is, and maybe Hans wants to add to that. Can I add something? Yes, of course. And then yeah. we go to take yeah. yeah, I work together with Doris on this. So let's say it's, what you're saying is right. But for the other hand, the UN system also recognizes that there are weakness in their systems, and they are engaging in pilots on joint complaint mechanisms. Like in North Kivu, there is a, a pilot where eight UN agencies and eight international NGOs have a one complaint mechanism to deal with this. And this is not as far 
not uh, going in uh, as far as the omelet function would be, but they recognize that the individual system is mainly for their own staff and for the people outside, the people that we try to serve with aid, it might be not enough. So let's say if you talk with the individual ombud function in WFP, she has an opinion, but there is a recognition at the interagency standing committee, the highest level, that m more needs to be done. So I would say, yes, there is a lot of resource, but I heard them from interna international NGOs as well, even Dutch NGOs. But I think we still have to re uh, start with the real discussion, both with UN and, uh, and we are going to do that. Enter here an opening. Thea, would you like to respond to all those, yeah, sure. a lot of questions? Maybe uh, too much to answer them all? But no, I will just do a few, and then uh, I'm sure Asmita will also have a few answers. I'd like to start with Range, and I'm really happy that you brought this out, because when I said that it can only function when there's a first tier, I didn't mean, well, I said it wrong. What I mean is it can... Ideally, it can only function when there is a first tier. It has to be both. But what I didn't mean is, until we have a proper first tier, we will not do nothing on the ombuds. That's not what I meant at all. So I'm really glad that I have the opportunity to clarify this. For me, the ombuds can start tomorrow. If it starts tomorrow, for the first years, you will see maybe there will be some complaints, investigations, but most of what the ombuds will do will be in the secondary roles, which is help to strengthen the first-tier mechanisms, investigate proactively. So that will be a large role of this ombuds to help the first-tier mechanisms to improve and to capacitate. Um, another issue I wanted to say something about the elephant in the room. Yeah, it's there, and it's really annoying. Yeah. No, seriously. I think, why cannot the UN or... Uh, the Red Cross understand even the psychology for your legitimacy that you have internal mechanisms but you don't have external oversight. Every sector has external oversight. When I go to a hospital, I'm badly treated, I go to the complaint mechanism within the hospital. If it's not good enough, I can go somewhere. Medische Tuchtraat. Even when I buy a bread and there is a mouse in it in the Netherlands, I go to my bakery, and if I cannot get my right with the bakery, I can still go to the National Association of Bakeries to complain about the mouse in my bread. How come that the UN and the Red Cross and some other agencies wouldn't be able to understand that also for the legitimacy, you need something as well, apart from all the things you have internally, you also need some kind of intersectoral totally independent external body. The first time I had um, a blog about the ombuds, I talked to one of the directors of a Dutch agency. And he or she said, Thea, that's a wonderful idea in ombuds, but of course, we already, we already have that internally, so we don't need to have another one. I thought, maybe you haven't understood the first reason why I wrote this blog. Because it's not about what you already have internally. It's about having something extra. And that brings me straight to the chain responsibility. I understand what, what you're all saying about it. But there's one element that you haven't mentioned. And that is the following. If something goes really wrong in a local NGO. And we hear about it. 
It's rare that that local NGO only has one donor. Subdonor. I don't mean donor as in the Netherlands. I mean donor as in eco or care. So what you usually see is that local NGO will have a contract with care. It will have a contract with Oxfam. It will have another contract with I don't know who. The UN, maybe something else. And one of the roles that the international ombuds can have in those type of cases is to help to coordinate. Because what we now see, if there is a scandal locally, all those different uh, partners of the local NGO will knee-jerk, hop on the plane and do their own investigations without collaborating with each other. So I think it will also... And having an international ombuds can also really help in improving <coughs> chain responsibility when there is a scandal that you have an agency that can help to align the responses of the different partners of that local NGO. Because that is usually the case. There's rarely a chain that goes from international donor, international NGO, local NGO, local partner. It's rarely a single chain. There's always multiple relations involved. So that about the chain responsibility. Is there something else you would want me to? I think maybe I just pass on to you. You must have a few things to say. Um, yeah, so there was, uh, yeah, there were so many things. I mean, just to quickly pick up on uh, what uh, Thea has just said. Um, on the chain responsibility, um, just to point out that I think, you know, traditionally there's been this laissez-faire approach you know as funds pass down the chain it's you know enough that it's passed down there hasn't really been enough oversight but things seem to be changing um when we were doing this project uh, the donors i've talked to is that you know said that they've changed their policies they're now requiring the you know the grant recipients to make sure they manage the money as it goes down um and the un has recently is in the process i think of um developing an agreement with uh, some NGOs which some of you may know about, about how they're going to coordinate on investigations. So I think that issue of um, local organisations, I think that needs to be dealt with, you know, collectively. It's not just a problem for the local organisation. It needs to be done through the chain. Again, also with the elephant in the room, I um, completely agree with what's been said. I mean, I think we have to... Remember, at the end of the day, the accountability is to the beneficiaries and recipients of aid and also to taxpayers. I mean, this is, this is the accountability. So uh, when we say that the UN and the Red Cross are defensive and resistance, um, I think, you know, that needs to be put, there needs to be pushback against that because why should they as institutions be allowed to be resistant and to fob off ideas and to, who are they to decide for themselves? Um, you know, they, they need to be held to account. And so, Doris, when I hear you say, oh, you're nervous about, you know, donors, but surely as, as particularly as government donors and as political actors, you are there to hold these institutions to account on behalf of both the, you know, the taxpayers in your countries, but also the recipients of aid who have no other voice and nobody to stand up for them. So I do think this comes down to political clout in terms of making these organisations... Um, uh, be held to account. So essentially, in a way, what we're saying is that at the moment we have a system where if people can't get redress, the only option seems to be if there's a media scandal. Why should that be the case? And there should be some other authority that people can go to. Because in the 16 years that I've been involved in this, back in 2002 to now, there have only been two global scandals. But in the meantime, there have been thousands upon thousands of cases, no doubt, but they don't reach a global journalist 
Um, why can't there be a system where people can turn to? So that's my comment on that. Yes, I think to pick up on your point about cultural change, clearly um, that is an absolutely key part of it. Prevention should be the main focus here. Um, and from my perspective, and particularly when you talk about sexual exploitation and abuse, a lot of this abuse is opportunistic. It's people taking advantage of lax environments and um, breakdown in you know, law and order. Um, these are not people who necessarily would behave that way in other circumstances. So a huge amount depends on cultural change. And for me, that is about leadership and management accountability at every level. And as you said, every single... Well, you didn't say every single manager, but I'll say that I believe every single manager has to be responsible for imbuing these values in their teams. They have to be held accountable for that. I can tell you back in uh, 2002 in West Africa when we uncovered this extensive abuse going on in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. And for those of you who don't know about that case, it's implicated 40 aid organizations. It was a massive scandal. Um, you know, we weren't super detectives when we discovered that. It was actually an open secret. Everyone knew about it, including the managers of these organizations, but no one had done anything. So until you get to a point where managers feel their jobs are on the line, unless they, A, inculcate values, and B, respond when they hear of abuses, nothing is going to change. Yeah, I think that covers everything. Let me just say one more thing, and that is something you haven't raised yet, and that is not just the security of victims, but also the security of alleged uh, perpetrators. And I just wanted to emphasize that an international ombuds could also be very important for that, that it can check and double-check if procedures have been upheld properly because one of the things that is happening too is because of the large attention to uh, sexual exploitation and abuse, you also see that agencies become very sometimes over-zealous in taking action. So there may be a case where somebody hints at some level of exploitation and the agency jumps into firing that person and then calling all the other agencies never to hire that person. And that might be very true, it might also not be true, but having some kind of second tier also to check on procedures and to see whether the system is not sort of pushing itself too fast into a direction where action is not following proper procedure would also be a very important uh, complementary function of the ombuds. And I'm really glad what you say about the journalists, because that's true. Eh? So we, we, I also find coverage very annoying, but it's not the end of the story. Eh? Because once you have an international ombuds, nothing will stop that if, if the international ombuds reports at the end of the year, in that country we've had eight complaints implying UN agency, nothing will stop the ombuds to write it in the report. So in that sense, there is no... Uh, you can't shut up the ombuds once it exists. Um, yeah, I'll just pick up on one last point, yep. sir, because Marinus mentioned about local staff and why would they not have access... Um, Clearly, this, you know, this again comes to coverage and you know, how much can one um, organisation do. We weren't excluding that, but we, we wanted to keep the focus and drawing on the feedback we had from the interviewees on the most powerless who really have no other recourse. So if the principle is that uh, this is last resort, 
We have to bear in mind that staff, even if they're local, do have other avenues quite often. You know, they do have legal contracts. They do have um, internal ombudsmen in a number of these organisations. So if the principle is that, you know, you work through what's already there, um, then certainly staff would have more in many circumstances than um, a beneficiary of aid would have. I think it's also interesting to note that even in some of these well-known cases that we've heard this year, for instance, in Save the Children headquarters in London, some of the abuses that, that were alleged by senior managers and CEO. So in, you know, sitting in London, the um, alleged victims of those cases actually had numerous legal channels that they have, could have followed um, or employment tribunals, or but they actually didn't do that. So, you know, this... You know, it's not always the case that there are no channels, but for whatever reason, people take a personal decision not to use them. Um, so that this is why the priority, you know, of it of this focus is on those who have no other recourse. But it doesn't preclude some particularly vulnerable local staff. Thank you. I'm going to the audience, and I, I did notice some people from the Red Cross in the audience. I know it's impossible to speak for you on behalf of the Red Cross, but maybe you have some advice for us. Please. Well, my name is... Uh, I'm one of the elephants, in, in fact. Um, um, <laughs> and I'm in the room. And the <laughs> uh, My name is Raymond Schutz, and I'm the, the integrity elephant of the Red Cross, so to speak. Um, what I've heard, and I'm speaking from an integrity perspective, um, I think it, it would be very wise to at least consider this uh, proposal and study it very well. And uh, I'm not sure if you had any negative reactions already from some party in the Red Cross, but, you know, if, 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 if the proposal is there, um, it, and if, you know, it looks quite, it, to me it looks, looks great. Um, uh, well, we, we have to at least consider it. It would be very unwise to just throw it away because we're elephants. So that, that's, my, <laughs> that, that's my opinion. So. Maybe, maybe I can add, we have to be held accountable also as Red Cross. Uh, in 2015, there was an international conference where we uh, had, uh, where we made a plea as 191 national societies to work on uh, PSEA. Uh, and in 2019, uh, we have to report what we have done in the past three years or, on that. We have to be held accountable, both locally, uh, in the counties where we work, the, uh, the, the, what we call beneficiaries and the communities, our staff, local staff, international. We should be held accountable. How? And I also, also, this is the first time that I hear that there are reservations. It may be. Uh, we are a complex organization, but we should always be held accountable. Thank you. Any questions from the audience? Just here in front. Hello. My name is Peter uh, Zoutel from ZOA. I, I would like to uh, link with what Bart mentioned on the, the wider integrity uh, debate, so the accountability. I think uh, I, I realized since beginning of this year that within the government we're zooming very much in on uh, the abuse uh, debate, but uh, accountability is much wider. So issues of land grabbing, uh, awarding of tenders, we know that that's a big issue actually in many countries, including our own, actually. So I just wonder, I think we, we need to think more on, on that line as well, not only focus on the, on the, abu on the abuse. One more question, and then now we go back to the panel and look forward. Yeah, my name is Ton Huizer. Actually, I wanted to make it a bit smaller. I was wondering why, this, why the second task of the ombuds is there. 
the capacity building. I think there's a lot of initiatives around capacity building in this field that can be, that can be taken up by NGOs, UN, and Red Cross themselves. But the external scrutiny, that's really the, the heart and the core of this, of this ombuds that should be held, uh, that, should be, that should stand, really. And that should be focused on and very soon as well. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to ask Thea and Asmita to reflect on these questions, if you would yeah, like. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, thanks for the support of the Red Cross. Um, uh, Peter, I completely agree with you. We've also talked about this. It seems very obvious that the international community is now having a very strong focus on sexual exploitation and abuse. So we also have that focus in our report. At the same time, we have kept it open. I hope you can see that, because we were also very uncomfortable that we would build a, an ombuds only around sexual exploitation and abuse, and it isn't. What we are saying in the report consistently, it will have a, a, very, a focus to start with on sexual exploitation and abuse, but there's no reason why other types of complaints couldn't come to the ombuds. And it would even be silly if you have an international aid ombuds and somebody comes there with a very strong complaint about something else, like... I mean, I was beaten up by an uh, aid worker, just to mention one. Why would the ombud say, well, I'm very sorry, I'm only here for sexual exploitation and abuse? That would be very strange. So uh, I don't think it's that openness. On the other, there's also one thing I wanted to say, which I forgot to say. Bart, when you say, I, have n I don't know anything about humanitarian aid, this is not a humanitarian ombuds. It's an aid ombuds. So you can feel completely at home with this initiative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. The second time? No, I, I also... Thank you, Tom. Very good comment. Yeah. And, and of course, what is not necessary is not necessary. But the second uh, is also not just to follow up complaints, but proactively investigate. But that falls, I think, very strongly in what you say, that... You cannot just wait for complaints. Sometimes if you hear rumors, you also have to proactively investigate. Yeah. Like, for example, uh, in Syria, where uh, UN uh, women found about a sort of very over-the-board-like abuse, there were, have been many rumors about it, of course, that may not have been linked to a specific complaint of a specific person. But in those kind of cases, the ombud should be able to launch an investigation. Um, yes, I mean, just to um, pick up on the point you're making about the two different roles of capacity building and external scrutiny, I mean, you're right that the focus of an ombuds needs to be on the external scrutiny. I think the reason it's there at the moment is because obviously in an initial model we were, you know, laying out all the possible different roles, but also recognising that the stage we're at and the sector is at at the moment where complaints mechanisms are weak, perhaps it does have a role in assessing what's in, you know, the state of the sector, highlighting what needs to be done so that the agencies that can provide the capacity building can direct their efforts. So in that sense, in a phased approach, it does have a role. And also as it goes on and if it is initiated and it, it continues, inevitably, you know, the work it does um, and the lessons it learned can also then feed back into capacity building. Um, so that was just on that. And I just also point out to um, the Red Cross uh, representatives here, if you see in the report, we did actually talk to various people and certainly within the organisation, there you know, are people at working level who are supportive of this. It's, you know, what would be the institutional position that's, that's the, the issue, really. 
Thank you. I want to make a final round to the other panelists. I would like to make a final... Hans. <laughs> I don't want to make the final thing. I think many of the big elephants were mentioned there, but I think, in my opinion, the biggest elephant was not mentioned, and that's most of the people that are depending on aid are living in societies where they cannot really trust the accountability system that exists in their society. So the big, this, all the issues that we discussed can be sorted if there is willingness and political and other buy-in. But if people ever will have the trust that they can trust this system and that they will be taken seriously, well, they never are being taken seriously. And even protesting, like in Syria, in Yemen, against uh, all kinds of structures. So I think that will, in the end, be the biggest challenge. Will people have confidence in this kind of mechanism? Uh, and you need to win that trust because you can't expect it as I can trust it in the Netherlands. You can't expect that. I think that will be the biggest challenge, my personal opinion. Thank you. Final remarks, from, at least from these four. <laughs> and uh, maybe you have some conclusive thoughts you want to share with us. And if you can package in it like the things you can bring to bring this further and what you need from the others here or there, it would be very nice. Um. No, maybe just reconfirming what I said earlier, that if this is, and I hope that it is going to be piloted, it, it needs to be, and it probably echoes what Hans said, it need, you, it, you need to get it right. It cannot be that you start this and then say, oh, sorry, yeah, we messed this up a little bit, let's try it again somewhere. It really needs to, and it's very well thought through already, but I do think you need a set of uh, stakeholders, with or without the UN, I, I completely agree that you should just get it going, but with a real commitment from the organizations that you involve. I think you get one shot at this. Yeah, just very short. Um, I think I've also heard that the minister said we that we she wants to start two pilots, which is a strong political signal. I think uh, so. Let's try the model. I think the first big question is where are you actually going to? What you call it nesting? Uh, where are we actually going to host this? Uh, uh, this would be pretty crucial for, uh, if you don't want to have a pilot failing, then that will be, I think, an important uh, question and decision. Thank you. Um, it's about the elephant about the, and about the mouse. Very often changes come, don't come along if you wait for the biggest players. And therefore, I would really start this pilot... And, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm too much of an activist and I'm not in a position of a government, but I really would go ahead with a pilot. And if the UN doesn't uh, uh, participate, just, just show that the, the benefits of this pilot and build upon it. If you wait for the UN, and the, if I understand it well about this uh, elephant, if we, if we wait, we are again 20 years uh, from now. I just would like to make an explicit strong stand on this piloting. No, I, I just feel like it's already <coughs> past five, but Hans, you opened up yeah. a big wall, and I just want to add a little one on this. It's not just the confidence in the system, but will this ombuds, what will this ombuds say when the abuse is not coming from aid? And that is what you will find, because in all honesty, I know there is abuse in aid, but I can tell you there is much more abuse outside of aid. And uh, when I was in the in Afghanistan, you know, the uh, 
And people were just talking so randomly about, oh, yeah, we have an issue. The police was calling one of the little boys in their uh, thingy and they raped him. I mean, there's much more abuse outside of the aid business than inside of it. So talking with local or national authorities on whether an ombudsman can signal, do something there, I mean, that is going to be your elephant, I think, eventually. Anyhow, that was a, a last happy moment to talk <laughs> about the feasibility of the initiative. Doris, please. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel? Of course, what, uh, what Hans said is, uh, is uh, very true. But then, of course, you're opening up uh, a whole new uh, horizon and that we cannot uh, solve. You know, we are even talking about the ombuds. It uh, turns out to be hard enough. I think it's very clear that we have political commitment uh, from this minister also. She has announced these two pilots. That will be our work because here we underscore that external accountability is an enormous challenge in the aid sector, and so we have to do something about it. So for the Netherlands, that's not an issue. But we do need friends. We do need allies. We cannot work on this by ourselves, and we cannot decide where to nest this. So we really need to do a lot of homework also. And while doing that, the pilots are also on the books. We will have to work, and, it, and, and I think it's agreed that we cannot do something amateurishly, that we have to think this through. We will need to have also constituency, also in the Netherlands, you know, the, the, you know who you represent uh, here, that to do this well. So I think the way forward is... Uh, on a positive note, uh, we will take some time to come to an international ombuds. Uh, the path is laid out, but our work and I, you know, our colleagues uh, also from the ministry is to find those friends and to start to make it uh, happen. And uh, we have at least uh, the backing of a lot of individuals who already say that uh, this is necessary, but the institutional backup we still need to work on. And that, of course, is an uh, international diplomacy uh, challenge ahead. Uh, but I think uh, we are gearing up. And since we have this strong political commitment, this will be our next way forward. Beautiful final words. Really, I think we have to leave it here. Thank you very much, Doris. I want to thank all the speakers. And um, I think it's time for drinks. And give a big hand to Thea for uh, making this beautiful report. And that's it. <laughs>